Please turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36 is where we will be this morning. Luke chapter 6, as we continue in the gospel of Luke. This morning's sermon is entitled, Impossible Love Made Possible. Our key words for our worshipers in training are love, good, and sinners. Now, one of the most shocking events in all of human history is recorded for us in the Bible. Most, if not all of us, recall that Jesus, only hours away from being crucified, was sitting in the upper room with his disciples. He's sharing the Passover meal. At the completion of the meal, he lowers to his knee and washes their feet. While it seems quite unlikely that the God-man would lower himself to his hands and knees to do the menial task reserved for the lowliest of servants in their culture, most remarkable in all of it is exactly whose feet he washed. A band of men called, appointed, commissioned as Jesus' apostles who would almost unanimously deny their relationship to Jesus in a moment of fear in the hours that lay ahead. And yet even more shocking still, knowing full well how he would be betrayed and turned over for death, Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer, Judas. Jesus reached out to Judas. He quoted to him Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This in the Psalms is a reference to Achithophel, who betrayed David and eventually committed suicide. But Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, on his knees, cloth in hand, kneeling before the man who, with a kiss, would betray him. And in doing so, to see to it that Jesus is led like a sheep to the slaughter. The Bible says that in this moment, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And the scene concludes, it was night. Eternal night in the soul of Judas. And while we consider the way in which Jesus offered love to his betrayer, there is still yet an even greater shock awaiting us in the pages of Scripture. A love so unlike anything else in all the history of the world. A love so unlike anything else that ever was. And indeed, a love so unlike anything else that ever will be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And because of the familiarity of that verse, those words don't necessarily strike us with the power that they contain. 
But the Apostle Paul reemphasizes that very same fact in more direct terms that go directly to the heart of what God has done. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul goes on to say that indeed we were, in, we, we were sinners, indeed we were weak, indeed we were ungodly, but even more striking, he tells us we were God's enemies. Enemies of His holiness, enemies of His grace. And so the truth stands, your heart and my heart are made of the same substance as Judas's heart. The heart of enmity and hatred toward God. The heart of rebellion and distaste for holiness. The heart of disdain for the righteous and just law of God. But how does God respond? He gave his only begotten son. To take upon himself the just penalty of our sin. To bear the full weight of the wrath of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the only reason that any of us are any different at all from Judas is because Jesus has released us from the bondage of our own sin and our own rebellion and has given us new hearts of love, new desires for God's glory, new affections for Jesus Christ. And it is only with these new hearts that we have any hope whatsoever of walking faithfully in the commands of Jesus in the text that we will look at this morning. As Jesus' enemies, not only did he wash our feet, he cleansed our hearts. He made us to be new creations, new creatures, able and desiring to obediently submit to his command and all that he calls us to. He has made possible an impossible love, a love that reflects the beauty and the glory and the love with which God himself has loved us in Jesus Christ. And so as we hear God's word this morning, we hear it if we are believers in Jesus Christ as people with new hearts, as new creations, able to walk obediently in what he commands of us. So let's read together. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners 
to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, before we deal with Jesus' command itself, it's important for us to recognize that there are several presuppositions that are brought into the text. There are certain background issues that are assumed here, maybe not necessarily obvious. I want to address those first, and then we will deal specifically with these verses. Now, when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is very clearly telling us that, indeed, we will have enemies. I even feel comfortable in stating that there is no such thing as an individual who doesn't have enemies. Now, sure, there are many who will try their hardest to please everyone. But in a fallen world, no matter our motives, pleasing everyone is absolutely impossible. Remember, last week in looking at verses 22 and 23, Jesus told us that on account of our being united to him, we will be hated, we will be excluded, we will be reviled and spurned as evil. In fact, later in the same passage, he identifies those who are without enemies those who are always spoken well of. He identifies that they are more like the false prophets than they are like Jesus. We saw that in verse 26. Jesus said in John fifteen nineteen, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 17, 14, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, The world has hated my disciples because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So it's inevitable. We will be hated. We will have enemies. Now, another important implication to draw is that it's not unloving. It's not unloving to classify someone as an enemy. Now, as I say that, one of my goals this morning is to prove to you from the text that having an enemy does not mean that our orientation toward them is hatred or bitterness, but instead recognizing that they do, in fact, hold something against us. And in doing so, they respond to us in a wide variety of different ways. Nevertheless, the Christian response to that hatred is very different than those who are members of the kingdom of the world. But even to say that it's not unloving to classify someone as an enemy doesn't sit very well in a time and culture such as ours. Our culture's measure of whether or not something is loving is based upon the subjective emotional response of the one who hears it. So, for example, for me to say that if anyone is to inherit the kingdom of God, he must repent of his sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we recognize that to be the most loving thing any of us could ever tell a person who is dead in transgression and sin. But to someone who is a Muslim or a Hindu, they don't hear that as loving. 
They hear it as hateful and bigoted. And so culturally, if a person can claim that what you said was hateful or offensive to them, it is classified immediately as unloving. Watch any public discussion with any conservative Christian and you will see that this tactic is at play instantly. But you see, love is not defined by the response of the one who is being loved. Love is defined by God. And according to God, there are certain things that we must say and certain ways that we must live and certain things that we must do that won't necessarily land on others as loving. In other words, it won't inherently feel loving to everyone all the time. But one's subjective feelings, their subjective feeling meter, if you will, is not our measure. God's command is our measure. I assume there are many, many people who heard the words of Jesus who didn't think He was very loving because they walked away not feeling very loved. But as the divine member of the Godhead, he is love. Now, of course, hopefully, I don't need to utter the fact that this does not free us to be harsh and void of all tact when dealing with our opposers. We are to communicate the truth with reverence, and love. Nevertheless, striving for a life of holiness before God is going to create enemies in the world. There's no escaping it. Identifying the fact that someone hates you and is your enemy is not unloving. It is a reality that triggers an appropriate response that is laid out for us in Jesus' command. So let's look specifically at that command. Jesus' introductory words to this passage identify the entire focus of the remaining nine verses. He begins, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, I take Jesus' statement to you who hear to mean those who are, based upon the context of the previous passage, members of the new kingdom of Christ. In other words, those who are truly disciples of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not laying out a command of love your enemies, and if you do, you will be saved. What he is saying is if you are truly a disciple, you will love your enemies. I'm commanding it of you, therefore I'm giving you the ability to do it. And in doing it, you prove that you are my disciple. Now We will frequently encounter the statement, those who have ears, let them hear, as we walk through the Gospels. These aren't any old ears he's talking about. He's not saying, if you hear me, hear what I'm saying. He's talking about Bible-saturated, gospel-believing, biblical, sermon-loving ears that receive the words of the Lord and they fall into their hearts that they would walk in faith and obedience toward God as new creations. Those are the ears he's talking about. 
In other words, the command of Jesus doesn't strike you with a sense of burden or disgust or anger for what has been expected of you, but rather you see it as opportunity to reverently and obediently, out of a thankful heart, walk in accordance with what has been commanded as to glorify God all the more, knowing that he has our greatest good in mind. Huge difference between the two. So Jesus says to his disciples, love your enemies. And when I hear that, I instantly want to ask two questions of Jesus. And the text answers those for us. First, we're going to ask, what does loving my enemies look like? How is it appropriately expressed? And when is it genuine? Secondly, I want to know where in the world does love for my enemy come from? This is a big question, right? So what does it look like and where does it come from? First, what does it look like to love our enemies? In verses 27 and 28, Jesus gives us three implications of what it looks like to love our enemies in generic terms. And then through the end of verse 31, he gives specific examples, illustrations, if you will, of what love for our enemy looks like. So let's look again at verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now the fact that Jesus tells us to bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you gives significant weight to what is meant by doing good to those who hate you. What's the significance? Well, I think we can all agree that it is possible for us to do good to those who hate us without really loving them, right? But when Jesus tells us to bless and pray for our enemies, we aren't being obedient by simply doing good deeds anymore. If our love for our enemies is to be genuine, it is going to be a love that really wants the good of our enemies. In other words, we are recognizing not only is this person opposing me, they have a great need to be reconciled to Jesus. Their greatest need is a new heart and new affections. So loving our enemies is far more than our external behavior toward them. It includes our hearts. It includes our desires. In other words, love cannot be and is not genuine if we do good deeds toward our enemies, but do not care in our hearts whether or not they perish eternally. So if I'm praying for my enemies and I'm blessing them, I am recognizing at least two things about them. First, they are just like me. They're human beings. They're sinful. They're full of pride and selfish motives, just like me. And secondly, they have a great need for the Savior. I know that Savior and I want them to know the Savior as well. You see, to bless someone is to desire their well-being and to turn that into an expression that we direct toward God in prayer. And I base that on the fact that Jesus' command isn't simply to do good or to bless our enemies, but also to pray for them. 
Now, surely Jesus' command is not intended to lead us to heartless, meaningless prayer that is void of any real desire for the good of our enemy. That's hypocritical prayer. That's not genuine prayer. Pray for our enemies. Well, what do we pray for? Loving our enemies means that we really want the best for them. Our hearts must be directed toward the best that we can hope for our enemy and recognizing that I am just like them. And their greatest need is a Savior that I know and I am much more able to have compassion and pity toward that very person who is seeking to do me harm when I am seeking their best in Christ. In very simple terms, Jesus illustrated what this kind of praying for one's enemies looks like. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's praying to the Father about those who have crucified him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus hangs... He looks upon those who have crucified him and he expresses genuine love and genuine mercy and genuine forgiveness. His mercy is, I will treat you better than you deserve. It's swallowing the innate sense of justice that resides within all of us, receiving the hatred at the hands of our enemies and saying, instead of giving you what you deserve, I will refrain. I will not return evil for evil. I will do good to you. His forgiveness is, I am willing to not count this offense against you. I want this relationship to be restored. It's a position a posture of openness and vulnerability. It's important because the opposite of forgiveness is not alienation. It's holding a grudge. Expressing forgiveness is saying, I am ready and willing to make this relationship right and I will not hold a grudge against you. Now, that requires a reciprocal action of repentance on the part of the other person. And you may never get that, even though forgiveness is offered. The one who wronged you may never recognize their wrongs. And they may never be reconciled to you, and the relationship may never be healed. But forgiveness in the way that the Bible calls us to is in opening ourselves to vulnerability, offering restoration, not holding grudges, always ready to be restored without grudge. That's our disposition toward them. That doesn't mean the offense goes away. It doesn't mean it doesn't need to be dealt with. It's quite the opposite. But it does mean that we're not hating that person as they have shown hatred toward us, whether or not they ever reconcile the relationship. And this is the forgiveness that Jesus calls for. Obviously, all the people who Jesus was praying for from the cross did not repent of their sins to be reconciled to God. But Jesus offered forgiveness. Jesus expressed his willingness to be reconciled. But in the end, in their hearts, enmity remained. 
Now, Jesus' love, then, is his desire that their eyes be opened to see. This is when he says, they know not what they do. In other words, Father, open their eyes. Let them see their sin. I'm praying that they would recognize their guilt, their need for repentance, their need for restoration. Jesus is genuinely concerned for their souls. I am willing to offer forgiveness because they are blind to the reality of their sin. Help them to see. Help them to repent. I want to make this relationship right. It's a powerful example of what praying for those who abuse us looks like. And I'm certain that none of us will have a similar experience to that of Jesus. Therefore, how much more? Ought we to pray for our enemies with mercy granting, forgiveness offering, love-filled hearts? Now in verses 29 through 30, Jesus is giving practical illustrations of what this kind of enemy love looks like. Let's read again verse 29. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now I assure you, the responses didn't sound any less absurd in the first century than they do to us today. There were two basic responses to enemies in the first century. For the pagans, any evil action, violence, theft, you name it, whatever it was, was to be repaid tenfold. If you slap me, I will break your neck. If you take my bag, I will chop off your hand. And no doubt, sometimes in public discourse, you hear these sorts of proposals to deter criminals even today. The other response is one that we read in the Bible, and it was the response of the Hebrew people. They had laws of retaliation, and it limited what could be done to equitable penalties. Exodus twenty-one twenty-three through 25 says, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And we certainly recognize that this is a just rule of law. And were it followed, it would, in principle, restore fairness and justice to our litigation-filled culture here. But obviously, Jesus takes that a little bit further, doesn't he? Turn the other cheek. Give to all who ask. It just doesn't sit well with us, does it? Having been created in the image of God, we have an innate sense of justice because God is just. And justice is moral. It is right. So the response that Jesus offers doesn't seem just. Or let me just say how we express it most often. It's just not fair. And you know what? Jesus wouldn't argue with you about that. You're right. It's not fair. But fairness is not his aim at all. Now, is Jesus saying that we don't engage in personal defense or that we just give up our rights to personal property? No, that's not his aim here. To draw that conclusion is a bit too simplistic and more importantly, it's a contradiction of other places of Scripture. 
Leon Morris explains, if Christians took this one absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly poor people owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. It is not this that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among his followers to give and to give and to give. In fact, as we look to this passage, we must recognize that sometimes the greatest way to love our enemy is to tell them no. We will be taken advantage of, no doubt. It's undeniable. It's unavoidable. We will encounter skilled liars who have mastered the art of manipulation. And someone who continually lies and seeks to manipulate us is no doubt an enemy. If a person has come to us frequently with lies and manipulation, refusing a relationship of love and mutual care and concern for one another, our love must say no. Sometimes doing good to those who hate us and giving to everyone who asks doesn't include doing exactly what they are asking for. Sometimes our best efforts at loving can actually become harmful when we make people dependent, when they should otherwise be seeking to work diligently, responsibly, faithfully. Loving our enemies includes seeking wisdom from God to know when it's best to lovingly allow our enemies to endure the full circumstances of their sin without pulling them out of it because God has designed those circumstances perhaps to bring them to repentance. But while I say that, I want us to be very clear. Saying no in love is not the norm according to Jesus' command. The Spirit of Jesus seems to be calling us more readily to free-handed giving. Giving of ourselves, giving of our possessions. You see, Jesus' is concerned, as always, is the hearts of his people. He is demanding love that is not vengeful, but generous and giving. He's demanding a heart of readiness to be reconciled, to be restored instead of always seeking revenge or retaliation or even compensation. Love includes being ready to give up all that we have or to have it taken away. Possessions, comfort, reputation, our very life, if necessary, that the glory of God and the love of Christ might win the day. Love, not justice, but love, is the determining factor in when to give and when to withhold. John wrote, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends? Jesus laid down his life for his enemies, that they might become his friends. This is the ultimate expression of what has come to be known as the golden rule. And we see that here in verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Interestingly, if you think about all of the times that this is most often employed, it's generally in the negative sense. Don't do X because I wouldn't want X done to me. But notice that Jesus doesn't state it in the negative. It's a positive formulation. 
He says, do unto others, not don't do. Again, it harkens back to the original statement. Do good to those who hate you. He's saying, this is how you are to treat all people, regardless of how they treat you. This is how you are to treat your enemies. It is a positive formulation and it is proactive. I am seeking to do good to my enemies. It's a principle of wisdom to be applied, especially in those circumstances in which a proper response is clouded in our minds because of the circumstances of the relationship. Jesus knew all too well that there will always be occasions when the proper duty toward our neighbor is not crystal clear. Our self-interest, our private feelings about a person and what they've done, especially our enemies, will often jade our perception of what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, he's given us a solid principle to turn to. To do to others as they do to us. And to return evil for evil is the standard of the world. But to behave toward others as we should like others to behave toward us, whether their actual behavior may be. This is the mark of Christian charity. This is true love for our enemies. This is walking in step with Jesus. Indeed, if Jesus had dealt with the world as the world had dealt with him, we should all have been ruined forever in hell. And surely for us, our natural response is that's an impossible kind of love. You're right. For man, it is an impossible love. Several things here now that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling on his people to love the unlovable. Look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In Matthew 5:47 Jesus brings us down to what seems to be the lowest level of enemy love. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? A simple greeting. So implied is that we have a responsibility to not treat our enemy as someone we don't even know, but rather when we see them, we're called to greet them. We show them kindness instead of a a furrowed brow or a cold shoulder. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? But you and I have both been in those situations, and our hearts are crying out for something entirely different. Other than the obvious, awkward, (laughs) they're saying to us, get away from me. I don't want to see you. I don't even want to hear your voice. So once again, our greeting is not the issue. It's a heart that says a love and a concern for the other person's well-being trumps the awkward, uncomfortable circumstances that having to offer the greeting creates. Just dealing with the people you love is no different from any way anyone else in the world responds. We are called to love those whom we find to be very unlovable. Jesus is also calling us to deeds of practical ministry. We saw it in verse 27. We see it in verses 33 and 35. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. In verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Loving our enemies includes seeing the needs and seeking to alleviate the suffering of our enemies. We are called to a high standard of duty toward our neighbors, whether they're friends or whether they are foes. Our love that overflows into deeds of kindness and mercy must be like our masters, free, gratuitous. Therefore, our charity of life cannot be confined to those from whom we hope to gain something in return. Even if the gain that we desire is as simple as someone saying thank you. Anybody can show kindness and charity when there appears to be something that will be gained in return. We see it all the time. But the way of gospel obedience is kindness and charity toward those within whom it's obvious that the return may be less than desired. We are moved by compassion. We are moved by pity. We are moved by gospel love for others, not by self-fulfilling returns. And so Jesus calls us to radical good deeds of mercy for the benefit of others, even our enemies. Jesus is also calling us to have hearts of non-retaliation. We see it in verse 35. As he says, love, do good, lend, expect nothing in return. Our rewards will be great. We will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We need not read many of Jesus' commands in the Gospels to see the radical call to self-denial for every Christian. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Denying ourselves for the sake of others. Walking in step with Jesus toward our enemies with compassion, with a desire to see them in right relationship with us and with God. It takes a great deal of self-denial because, of, as we've already considered, our response is not naturally mercy and compassion, particularly when someone has sinned against us. It's justice. It's revenge. But loving our enemies recognizes, hey, this person is my enemy. Chances are they're not going to respond to my doing good to them in kind. But I'm called to do it anyway. That's self-denial for the sake of the gospel. And again, in our eyes, it's an impossible kind of love. And in of all these things that Jesus outlines, he's drawing out a very important reality that reminds us of what we considered last week. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, your life is vastly different than the lives of those who are not. 
because we live in very different kingdom realities. Notice three times in verses 32 through 34, Jesus says, if you do things in a certain way, you are doing them in the same way as the people of the world. Even sinners do it that way, he says. So implied is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are different. In other words, if you're a child of God, as verse 36 alludes to, you respond in very different ways. You do what your father does. Now quickly, we'll answer our second question from the text. Where does love for my enemy come from? It seems impossible. And we see it in verses 35 and 36. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The impossible love that we are called to have for our enemies is made possible and motivated in two ways. First, it is motivated by reward. Jesus tells us in verse 35, love in this way and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, our love for our enemies is is not the means by which we gain our salvation, but it is a means by which we prove to be the saved. It is proof that our, our inheritance as children of God is secure because it's made obvious that we have new hearts and new affections as God's children. We recognize that our reward is great in heaven. It's not something we're seeking out here on earth. So then I'm freed up to love those who hate me and revile me and curse me and seek to do harm to me because I'm not living to be comfortable. I'm not living even to be liked. I'm living to honor God and his glory in a manner worthy of my calling as a believer in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're freed up to love our enemies because our motivation is not what the world offers us in return. Our motivation is our eternal reward. Secondly, our love for our enemies is made possible because it is a response to the mercy that we have been shown. He points that out in verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Out of glad-hearted love for God and an overwhelming thankfulness for what He has done for us in Christ Jesus, we are again and again and again reminded, I was God's enemy, but He single-handedly made me His friend, His Son. He gave His Son that I might become His Son. You see, our love for our enemies is motivated by the gospel. For the people of the world, loving our enemies is foolish. It's reckless. It's senseless. Why? Well, because they've not experienced the great mercy of God. But for those of us who walk in the newness of life, we are reminded yet again of the hatred that was stored in our hearts for God and how God, instead of giving us what was fair and what we deserved... Instead, he loved us and called us onto himself 
and saved us from the wrath that was rightly ours by pouring it out on His own Son instead. And not only do we escape the wrath of God, we inherit the righteousness of Christ, giving us the ability to do the very thing that is impossible, to love in impossible ways and to obey with thankful hearts. J.C. Ryle wrote, How common is an angry, passionate spirit, a morbid sensitiveness about what is called honor, and a readiness to quarrel on the least occasion. How seldom we see men and women who love their enemies and do good, hoping for nothing again, and bless those that curse them and are kind to the unthankful and the evil. Truly we are reminded here of our Lord's words. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Brothers and sisters, the next time you sit down to fire off an angry email, or you post some passive-aggressive Facebook post, or send an I-got-something-to-say-to-you text message, or make, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind phone call. I pray that the Spirit of God would remind you of the words of Jesus. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. J.C. Ryle continues, How happy the world would be if Christ's precepts were strictly obeyed The chief cause of half the sorrows of mankind are selfishness, strife, unkindness, and want of charity. Never was there a greater mistake than to suppress the vital Christianity interferes with human happiness. It is not having too much of Christ, but too little that makes people gloomy, wretched, and miserable. Whether Christ is to be known and obeyed, there will always be found most real joy and peace. And so let's pray together that whoever our enemies are, for some of you it's maybe a co-worker or your boss. For others perhaps it's your next door neighbor. And sadly, but realistically, there are even some of you in here this morning that find no other person more detestable than your own spouse. Let's pray that we would be taught and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that we could love our enemies and experience the blessing of God's grace and charity in such a way toward us that we have no reasonable way of living life but to express the same toward others. I close again with the words of J.C. Ryle. We do not gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. We cannot have flowers without roots or fruit without trees. We cannot have the fruit of the Spirit without vital union with Christ and a new creation within, such as are not born again can never really love in the manner that Christ enjoins. Brothers, sisters, friends, 
our most vital need is intimate union with Jesus Christ. Once our enemy, and if we are in him, now our closest friend. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. And Lord, we pray that very thing, that whoever our enemy is, that we would be taught and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that we could love them as we have been loved by you. That we could love them with grace and charity in such a way that they see within us a great desire to make much of Jesus. That we could love them in such a way that communicates that our love, our hope, our desire for their good is wrapped truly in our hearts and it is desired that it be expressed toward them for their benefit, that they would see and know and Savior and love Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would do that work in each of us, that you would help us to do what is impossible because in Christ Jesus you have made it possible for us. Do that work for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.